you don't want to invest in building a brand that eventually you can't own, right? That you can't own or sell. I mean, it's just, it's just a waste of your time and money and it puts you at risk. Welcome to the 10K Collective podcast for six, seven and eight figure Amazon and e-commerce sellers, part of the amazing FBA podcast family. If you want to scale fast, target a seven-figure exit, and enjoy the process, then keep listening. Do you want to grow your business bigger and faster? A free audit of your Amazon business can help you see and avoid threats and find missed golden opportunities. I generally charge $150 or more per hour, but this would be free. You can be a reseller or a brand owner. All I ask is that you're doing a few thousand dollars a month in sales already. Just visit myamazonaudit.com, scroll down, click on Amazon Audit and book in a time. That's M-Y-A-M-A-Z-O-N-A-U-D-I-T.com. Look forward to speaking to you on your audit. Ladles and jelly spoon boys and girls, welcome back to the 10K Collective Podcast, the place to be for six, seven, and eight-figure Amazon sellers and, of course, business owners. Today, we are going to talk about preparing for exit, that is selling your business, when you will make possibly 50, 60, 70% of all the cash you're ever going to make in your Amazon business. So we're talking today to Paul Raffleson of the law firm Raffleson Lawyers. They are lawyers for Amazon sellers. Paul is a real big hitter in the legal world. He was former in-house counsel at Microsoft walmart and general electric so those are huge companies so a man who understands the corporate world and that's going to be very relevant to our conversation i think so paul first of all welcome back to the show hey thanks so much i appreciate a lot of changes last time i was on here and yeah. last time i was talking about taxes and so i'm glad to be talking about something totally different yeah taxes are never fun i mean like, i suppose legal due oh. diligence is not exactly what most people would classify as a you know an entertaining weekend either but we've got to talk about Really, one of the things that I've seen with one of the reasons I've got you on the show is because I've seen my clients selling a business and go through all sorts of pain because they failed to register a trademark for something five years ago or something that seems small at the time and gets in the way of a literally a million pound deal in that case on 1.2 or whatever it was. So, you know, $1.5 million deal. So that's really what we're going to deal with today. I think is, is how do we make the exit smoother, easier, better, or even possible. So let's talk about it from the, the sort of 60,000 foot view downwards. What are the, does it even matter that you fiddle around with legal stuff before you're worrying about it to see your business? Why should we even discuss this? So, I mean, it sort of depends on who your target audience is. So we're, we've been through, yeah, I've been in the world of exits and then I'm in emergence of acquisitions for pretty much my whole life. The part that's interesting is that the last six years, I sort of started this e-commerce law practice. I, you know, I left the big corporate world and just kind of been following the trends of what e-commerce businesses need help with. And obviously in the last few years, exits has been a big part of what we do. We're in 2021, we did a quarter billion in, in for our clients. I think we're now vastly approaching like towards a half a billion in clothes and cash received for our clients. So I mean, we do know a thing or two about the industry and I will say one of the first things I noticed with Amazon deals in particular was the sort of the lack of due diligence. Like it was just really kind of like a lack of interest in, in doing the due diligence by the buyers. The buyers had, were in a rush to get deals closed. They were in a rush to sort of spend the money that they had committed to them. And the last thing they really wanted to do was get bogged down in due diligence. So what, what do they do? Well, instead what they would do was they would say, 
we want you to make a promise in the contract that everything's good, right? And unknowingly, you might want to do that. You might just sign a contract thinking it's just like any other boilerplate doc, which is not, without realizing that you're actually making a pretty unreasonable promise. You're making these promises that you, you haven't really researched, right? And so going to your point about IP, it's like, so you have a trademark. You've, you've, got, you've had this one trademark that you trademarked, you, you registered the trademark, it's registered with Amazon. And then, and that, because that controls your brand registry, you kind of think you're done. But if you created a brand of sort of that sort of dynamic, right? It's not just one product, right? But let's say you have different variations and maybe the variations have different names for their, for their different flavors or smell, or whatever it is, or styles. Like each of those becomes a trademark in the common law. You're, you're holding them out as trademarks, right? Certain slogans that you might be using. You could be establishing trademark rights in those things, and it wouldn't be inappropriate for a buyer to interpret that as trademark. And the fact that you haven't registered it means that you're sort of taking on the risk that if, if it turns out that you shouldn't have been using that name for your variation because it kind of causes confusion with another brand, uh, now you're taking the risk. Whereas when you have a registered trademark, the risk is a lot lower because while well, yes, it can be subject to challenge depending on how many years and, and whatnot, but there's a higher probability that your trademark is good if it's been through the vetting process of the U.S. trademark office. So from our perspective, is it necessary? I mean, plenty of deals have closed without having that extra leg look into your IP, but we think it's certainly for your own protection better that you do start applying to those trademarks now because simply you don't want to invest in building a brand that eventually you can't own right? That you can't own or sell. I mean, it's just, it's just a waste of your time and money and it puts you at risk. So why, why would you want to do that? I mean, wouldn't you want to know that yeah. these brands are valid? Absolutely. I would say a couple of things as well. I mean, this is very much from the sidelines as up to this point, although I'm getting involved myself in, in trying to acquire businesses, I can tell you that I'm most literally working with a client yesterday, American client trying to buy a business that I've basically persuaded not to buy at all. That sounds really negative outcome, but I think it's incredibly positive because I was starting to vet deals pretty harshly, and that was on on half on behalf of someone else. If my own money were in, in the stake, I'd be doing it more. And I think the era where the aggregators were in a great rush to spend is just gone. I, I, that bubble has burst, right? Because the valuations out there have just gone down. Or, or is that inaccurate in your in your view? Is there still uh, a bit of a feeding frenzy going on for these businesses? I think there's still a market, but you're right. I mean, it's not the aggregators. Like, there's not, it's not like 2020, 2021, like that transition. I mean, there was like a new aggregator every day. I never heard of it, right? It's like, yeah, I got a, literally an email a week for the podcast for about six month period from a different aggregator yeah. to come on the show. It was just right. absolutely crazy. And that's just completely stopped now. It's just like, here's sawdust brands. And here's, it, it's like uh, just any day, it was just everything was just popping up. I mean, it seemed like the money was cheap. And that was a big part of where, where what the time was like too was money was cheap. Yes. Money's not cheap anymore. So it's a lot harder to run this business model as an aggregator. The ROI is just not there when you're, you're paying 17, 18% interest on, on your loans. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty hefty. Yeah. 17%. You got to get an ROI. So I guess what we were talking about, if, if I understand the legal jargon, so basically people have made promises. Is that warranties or representations or some, something more? Like that? Yeah. So, right, so okay. I explained. So. Let's take a step back. Like you're selling your business, right? So what have we done? Maybe you have a, a broker, right? An agent or somebody representing you. Maybe you're doing it on your own, but you go out, you get a deal, right? You get, you talk to somebody who's a buyer 
you make an arrangement and they say, yeah, I'll pay you X amount of dollars or X multiple of, of this earnings to buy your business. And that gets written up in a letter of intent and that letter of intent has some terms in it, but it's missing quite a lot, right? It's not sufficient to do the deal because you haven't gone through due diligence yet. But after you go through due diligence and on the other side of that, usually that we start to see a purchase agreement come, you know, starts to come forward. Uh, usually buyer's counsel will present the first draft. And in that purchase agreement are what's called reps and warranties. And these are promises, right? I call reps and warranties. I think it's like a bundle of promises you're making about the condition of your business, right? And the problem with these promises is that they're not always knowable, right? So you're going to be making promises in theory that you may not know that are actually true, right? Like, for example, you're always in compliance with all laws. Well, that might be easy to say if you're running like a little tea shop in Main Street, USA, right? In one little town and one little piece of America, right? In one state. But when you're in e-commerce and you're selling across 50 states and you're importing from overseas, it's hard to say you know, for sure you're complying with all laws. And usually we don't have time to dig into it when you're going through the process of selling your business. So what I explain to people is that the letter of intent which dictates sort of the price. And it's only half the problem. The other half of the problem is the risk because there is a risk negotiation that goes on in these deals because buyers want the right to recover, right? Not only to sort of like hold back any earnouts or set off any earnouts or future payments, note payments, you know, the note payments, loan payments. They also want the right to recover the money that they paid you, right? So a lot of times the deals, you know, the first things the buyers want is they want the, the seller to be personally liable. So you're not just the company, but they want you personally to be liable for any issues that, you know, could arise to indemnification claim for the buyer. Right. And that what, what typically can cause that claim is basically a misstatement of those promises, those reps and warranties. So it all kind of ties together. But the key is to understand is that. The letter of intent is really a very small part of the equation. I mean, there's still a huge risk negotiation that has to go on. And if anyone tells you that these documents are boilerplate or it's just signed here, which I've heard some less scrupulous brokers have done, I'm not going to name, name them, but they've just basically said, you know, you don't need a lawyer to sign here. It's like buying a house. It most certainly isn't. You're, you're undertaking an obscene amount of risk. And that needs to be negotiated to sort of a market level of risk, which is what our job is as your lawyer, in my opinion. Well, and also, I would just say, if you're buying a house, I mean, I, I don't know about American law, which presumably must be very complicated because you've got state, federal, county, mm -hmm. goodness knows what. But in England, where I'm like, use the word advisedly for Welsh or Scottish or Irish cousins, I mean, English law is complicated and messy and if i were buying a house well we are buying a house right now my wife would buy buying a house i'm using a lawyer my, my dad was a lawyer he did a lot of conveyancing as we call it yeah so i i don't think any significant purchase should be just assumed that the legal stuff is just boring and e easy lawyers get high payment and traditionally like hundreds, hundreds of years they always have and i think there's a reason for that they're dealing with a complex thing <laughs> i don't think you right. can increase your risk by playing amateur hour personally but that even if you're buying a you know property or real estate but yeah for sure in business it, i think a lot of people don't realize the risk they're running when they're actually running their business. It's only when they come to evaluate it from the perspective of, of selling it that they start to open their eyes again. Wow, what have we been doing? Yeah. No, I mean, in America, do have standardized mortgage contracts, mortgage contracts, home purchase contracts that are tied to 
conformity of certain loans. So it's like, there are so, a lot of states, like New York is not one of them, but a lot of states where people regularly do just sign the contracts with with their realtors and not a lawyer. And, and I, yeah, not my recommendation, but it is, there are some built-in protections if you're doing what we call like a Freddie Mac conforming loan or Fannie Mae conforming loan. Like there's certain protections because a lot of the contracts have to meet certain criteria to be in that bucket. So they have a sort of standard MLS form. So from that perspective, I think that's where I'm coming at. I, I agree. I would always have a lawyer if I was doing anything, but a lot of people in America don't use a lawyer when they buy a home. In fact, majority probably do not. They just that's have the real right. Very interesting. So, it's the UK situation. Okay. Interesting. Absolutely. So for American listeners do not assume that it's like buying a house and for Brits, yeah, keep using lawyers. Okay. Yeah. And also yeah, Franny, Freddie Mac and Franny May that the home is so-called free enterprise is a lot less free market than the UK. The UK actually listened, I think, to Thatcher actually listened to what's his name, Milton Friedman and all those economists, the Chicago economists and, and actually created a pretty free market situation here. So we don't have 30 year house loans. And the reason for that is not backed by the government. Whereas in the US that the home of so-called free enterprise uh, free markets are actually yeah. quite federally driven. Anyway, we're going down the rabbit hole here, but, but what I, what I always say to people though, is I say like, when you, when we say like, well, it's just boilerplate, you know, why don't you just, you know, spend an hour, walk me through it or done. I said, well, I mean, it's like, you know, when you, when you get on an airplane and so you're traveling somewhere and you, you, you walk on the plane, you look to your left and you see the cockpit, you know, you're in a Boeing seven, 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 seven or something. Is that boilerplate to you? I mean, cause it is right. I mean, if you're a pilot, that cockpit's probably boilerplate, but if you're not a pilot, you have no idea what the heck all those switches and dials do. And that's how I sort of analogize the purchase agreement. It's like, it's not that this stuff is rocket science, but it, what it is, it's like a cockpit of an airplane. It's like a, of a commercial airplane. It's got a thousand switches and dials. Every word, every comma, every definition is like a switch. And if you don't know what this button does, the whole thing can come down real fast, right? You can burn out. So that's really our job is to kind of help configure this contract to what we would say is a market level of risk, what's an appropriate amount of risk for you as a seller to undertake. And if you don't go through that process, if you take the buyer's first draft, I mean, it's pretty brutal. I mean, it's pretty much, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but you know, the typical buyer's first draft is you're guaranteeing us a sure thing. And if anything goes wrong, we have the right to go after you personally. We can go after your house. We can go after your car. We can go after anything and everything we want. That's not a great deal for you to sign. And, and so it, in, in my explanation of what we do as a lawyer, that's sort of our job is to sort of say, hey, let's let's mitigate that risk. Let's negotiate that risk to something more reasonable. And so that's how we do our, our position. That makes a lot of sense. So you, you guys are really just like a, a pilot. It's not about doing anything complicated when things go well. It's understanding that if the switch number 898 start, there's a red light that starts blinking, you know what it means and what to do about it. So as opposed to going, yeah, whatever. I don't know what that means. Let's ignore it and assume it will go away. So tell us about the risks though. So what are the risks? So it, I, I like the pilot analogy. I'm an aviation enthusiast. So I, that does it. Me too. Me too. Um, what, <laughs> yeah, me too. So, so what are these risks that we're looking at? So, so you put it in broad terms that, you know, guaranteeing a sure thing. And if not, we can go after everything you own. That doesn't sound good. I agree. You talked about IP. Where are the places that tend to bring up issues then? What are, what are we looking at solving for here? So there's two sides of an argument when you're going through one of these deals, right? The argument is that you're the owner of the business. You should know anything and everything about your business. Our argument of the, is that, hey, look, e-commerce was uh, a liberating 
right? It was like, a, it liberated the market, right? It gave every everybody access to the market in a way that never could have been imagined. So you've got a lot of people who aren't sophisticated kind of going out there and bootstrapping these businesses, but don't expect them to know like the California rule on fountain shower head pressure laws, right? And or, or don't expect them to know, you know, the nuances of every possible SDA or FTC or, you know, environmental law out there. It's an unrealistic thing. If you understand our industry, you know that, right? And so the problem becomes where if you're making promises that your business is compliant with the laws, that you have title to all intellectual property, which we can talk about in more detail, which we kind of were hitting on earlier, right? What that buyer is going to do is they're going to say, I'm going to rely on what you're saying. It's, so it's not just about liability before and after, like, hey, if you got sued for something before closing, that's on you. And there's not sued for something that can't, relates to after closing, that's on me. Like, it's not, we call that, you know, our watch, your watch. It's not what that's about. What these promises are really about is they're about reliance. It's about the buyer wants to rely on your promises that you were doing things by the book, right? So that they can just keep doing what you're doing and improve upon it. But they don't want to go back and research whether what you were doing was the right thing. Like, did you need a warning label? Did you need a sticker? Did you need, you know, whatever it is, they don't want to do. They just want to say, they just want you to promise that you were doing everything right. So they can go out and rely on that. And if for some reason it turns out, oh, shoot, that thing that you were selling, turns out you're not allowed to sell that on Amazon because it's, a, you know, whatever. If that happens and they want to just come after you for that. So they, again, they don't want to do the homework. They don't want to do their own research. They yeah. really just want you to make promises that they can rely on. And that's part of how you get to the quick close, right? I mean, otherwise yeah. due diligence would take months and months and months. They really just want to lean on you. Do you want to grow your Amazon business bigger or faster? I bet you do. If so, a free audit of your Amazon business can help you see and avoid threats and find some golden missed opportunities. Generally, I charge at least $150 an hour these days for my time, but this is free. You can be a reseller or a brand owner. All I ask is that you're doing at least a few thousand dollars a month in sales. If you are, just go to myamazonaudits.com, scroll down, click on Amazon Audit and book in a time and we'll see each other on a Zoom call. That's M-Y-A-M-A-Z or Z-O-N-A-U-D-I-T.com. Thank you very much for listening and I hope to see you on a call soon. Okay, so it sounds like there are sort of three things that strike me with all three levels. One is I'm thinking, okay, it's a bit lazy if you're buying something not to do the due diligence on that level. And then Brilliant. it strikes me like, but multiple months of doing that is going to be incredibly costly and probably not desirable for anyone. And then it strikes me like, okay, well, in that case, in the, it sort of does make logical sense that the, the seller is going to make representations or warranties, whatever the right word is, promises that, you know, they've done their homework. So in other words, what strikes me is that you need to accept that as a seller, you've got to do the homework, but to, to start doing that from day one, really. So. Otherwise, it's going to be a nightmare. And as I've seen with, with some of my clients, that they just kind of churn around with the lawyers for ages and they're hating it and they're distracted from oh, the business. Yeah. It, it, is, it is awful, but it is. It's something that, you know, you it, it would be... And these things come up because, right, you're coming into this agreement, you're coming into this deal negotiating. You have no idea. Like A lot of these people, right? Like I had a client overseas selling a product that was 
you know, required to be tested annually under the Consumer Product Safety Act, CPSA. And they're supposed to get those CPSC certificates and, and provide those showing that they did testing every year. They had never heard of the agency or the law, right? And we're like two weeks before they wanted to close. We'd already gone through due diligence. And then, you know, I'm finding out for the first time. My client has no idea what that law is. The buyer has really no idea what it is. And it creates, it creates a little bit of chaos, right? Those are things that can shut down a deal, right? Those kinds of, you know, facts that, you know, so it's better, I think, as a brand owner, especially knowing that you have this opportunity to build real enterprise value and generational wealth with your Amazon or e-commerce business to start investing and doing the work now. I mean, I know that sounds self-serving as a player, but boy, it would be nice to work with clients like now when they're not in a rush to get their business sold versus at the last minute when they're trying to get things sold and they're like, oh, wow, this came up. Yeah, a couple of observations from from something that's possibly a little bit more familiar to, to most entrepreneurs, at least the ones who are still standing, which is getting your finances in order. So everyone has to do some kind of tax, what do you call it, account, you put your accounts into some kind of government somewhere, whether UK, US, anywhere. And it's pretty terrible to discover 18 months after the close of, of year end or whatever that you actually lost a hell lot of money on something. And that's a very common thing. So the next level mm-hmm. of after you've done that a couple of times, let's level of, of awareness is shoot. Maybe I should employ an accountant and a bookkeeper and actually look at the books once a month. So I guess this feels like the legal equivalent of that. It's like, see the stuff coming now. And, and the other thing I was pointing out is it's, it's, you're dealing with very old information and a lot of the information will have disappeared from the face of the earth, especially if it's to do with Amazon seller central, where they tend to not give you more than 18 months or two years of uh, historical mm-hmm. data, which if you're dealing with a business seven years old or whatever, or 10 years old, that's pretty terrible. So. Again, it strikes me as a similar thing, like it's about keeping records. So it is important because we have to, you know, you, you speak about the, the history of Amazon, right? Mm-hmm. One of the things we have to do is we have to make disclosures too, right? So we have to make, right? So if there's, there's a common rep, rep, rep and warranty we see in these deals where it says like, you've complied with Amazon's terms of service, right? Which I think is bogus because I kind of, nobody knows. I don't know anybody who's perfectly complied with Amazon's terms of service, but certainly what you want to do is say, except as disclosed, you comply with Amazon's terms of service and disclose any, any scenario where you didn't, such as any time you got a performance notification, which, so we always tell our clients that go through your in- emails, try to find history, go through, because it's not just what you see on Amazon today. It's, you got to go, you know, if you've been doing this for seven years, you got to go back. And then another nuance to that is, it, and just you can understand the nuance of what we do as lawyers, like, if I really wanted to write that rep the way I wanted, I'd say to seller's knowledge, right? And accept as disclosed, right? Or accept as disclosed to seller's knowledge, right? The seller has complied with Amazon's terms of service. And then I want to go in and I want to define knowledge. And I want to define knowledge as your actual knowledge, meaning what you actually know based on what you've been told. So if Amazon has told you, hey, you're in violation, sure, then that's it. The problem with the word knowledge, and this is just an example of, the, of kind of going back to the cockpit analogy of how complicated these switches are, right, is how you define knowledge dictates like your obligation to know something and how bad the situation can be if it turns out you're wrong. So if we say to your knowledge, right, and we define your knowledge as your actual knowledge, what you actually knew or were aware of, you're compliant with all laws, then you're pretty good as long as you're disclosing any situation where you've actually been told you ha- might have a violation of the law. But when you remove that actual and we get into what's called constructive, now suddenly the promise you're making isn't qualified by what you actually knew. It's what you could have possibly known. 
And that part is really scary because now you're making a promise that your, your business complies with all the laws and it's based on whether you knew it or not. Right. And so if it turns out that you're not complying with those laws, not only can you be done in for breach of contract, you can actually be done in for fraud, right? Because the definition of fraud in these contracts is a civil fraud, not criminal can lead to, you know, just your failure to make an investigation. Right. And if the standard for which you're making this promise that you comply with all laws is of a, a standard that's, you know, anything that's knowable as opposed to anything that you actually knew, you can see how it can, it can be seen as a misrepresentation to say that you, you, you comply with all laws when you probably knew you should, you weren't right. So this is just one small example of like the kinds of nuance and, 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 and lawyer stuff that people hate, but that we have to deal with in order to protect you. <laughs> Yeah, again, I guess one way of looking at lawyers is that you may, you don't have to like or love lawyers, although, you know, I, I personally think that you're well advised to have expert advisors, but that even if you think very little of them, that the lawyer on another side can be and probably will be employed by anyone who's angry or feeling that something has gone wrong that, that is, you know, ethically dubious, or even if they're just sharks, which does exist. And therefore, your lawyer, if nothing else, should be there to protect you against future lawyers. I always think of it that way. And particularly in a litigious society, like especially America, but Britain mm -hmm. as well. I mean, you, you have to have that. And it's interesting what you're talking about. Anything knowable as opposed to what you knew sounds absolutely horrendously open-ended in a very terrible way. So I'd certainly want my lawyers to, to get rid of anything like that if it's possible, because otherwise uh, it just sounds like they're make you, making you sort of infinitely liable anything ever almost i mean that's not correct that's that's you know? the game and that's the game and that's what yeah. this is about it's, it's, right. it's just a game it's a game to make you infinitely liable so that it's not to say that they'll definitely will do anything to you because of it but they want the right and you have to understand it's not oftentimes like you know unless you're dealing with a small private buyer like if you're dealing with an aggregator part of the reason that they want that stuff is because their lenders or their investors want it, right? Their investors, you know, people would say to me, no way I have to worry about any of this because so-and-so aggregator would never sue me. They'd never have another deal again. Right. Well, look how many aggregators stopped doing deals, right? So it doesn't look like they care that much anymore. And two, at the end of the day, when these deals go bad, it's not necessarily the aggregator person that you're going to be, you know, it could be their investor, right? When it's in bankruptcy and they become creditors, so they are creditors, but when they, start enforcing their creditor rights. That's who wants this stuff more than anything is the, their investors want to be protected. So they're going to want harsh contractual terms in the favor of the buyer. Yeah. It's interesting. It reminds you of the conversations you, you hear, used to hear about people and VC money, you know, people say I've raised X amount from VCs and, you know, venture capitalists and, and uh, the seasoned entrepreneurs would say commiserations. I'm sorry to hear that, but you know, because they put such horrendous terms in there. Oh, absolutely. Well. Yeah. <laughs> No, it's very, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I'm at some of the, the terms, and that's what this what it is VC. It's it's private equity, but it's a form. You know, it's it's even worse. I think. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's to be wary of as as a general investor. Yeah, that the the downsides of VC and uh, PE and all those things we could discuss for ages. But let, let's try and bring this to something a bit more actionable. Though, so we we scared people a lot, which Please. is uh, a traditional lawyer thing, Sorry. and so we sort of falling into the cliches. So. Let's talk about how to positively take action to protect yourself when you make your business more sellable. So we've mentioned intellectual property. We can talk about that. What's the sort of action plan to get this stuff handled while you're operating a business and therefore to make it sellable and keep yourself safe? 
So I have this joke. I always say it a lot of times when I speak at conferences. I say sometimes when you're, a, you know, you're the lawyer at the e-commerce conference, you're the guy handing out the STD flyers at Burning Man. You know what uh, I mean? Like, well, like, you know, you're just like, you know, nobody, you're the, you're the buzzkill, right? Nobody wants to hear from you. So I appreciate that. You know, that it, it's a tough position, but we're, we're, you know, I think we're, we're going down the road of what can you do to prevention is, is always the best medicine. Now it's prevention better than paddock cure. Uh, insert cliche similar statement but that i do believe in those points right as a lawyer for us like our job is to is to help our clients stay out of trouble right i mean you always lawyers make more money when you're things get in trouble but our position is we you know we're here to help our clients stay out of trouble and the way you do that is you start early you start looking at your ip is is a great example of something you should be doing and what is ip intellectual property is anything i mean a picture right if you're using a picture that's IP, right? And it's it's essential asset in your deals. So I would say you start by taking inventory of your photos, right? If you're using them on your packaging, if you have packaging, if you're using them on your listing, right? Who made the photos, right? How do they make the photos? Did they use any stock photography? If so, where did they get the stock photography? Take inventory of everything because even a photo can trip things up because a photo... A photo, like I'd rather say to someone, hey, I don't know where I got this photo from. I don't know who made it. Why don't you just make a new photo and get rid of the old one, right? It's a very easy fix, right? But if you don't fix it and then somebody comes chasing after you for violating a copyright because you did the wrong license or the photo you're using isn't transferable. And I mean, there's just, I've seen so many situations where we've been sitting around cataloging photos because the buyer's paranoid about whether the seller even knows where their pictures came from. And we're like, you know, the faster solution here may just be to create new photos. So that's an easy one. Trademarks. Anytime you're using a slogan, a cute name, right? Consider whether you might have trademarks. It's like, like trademarks don't stop. It's just the one, just because the Amazon brand registry needs one doesn't mean you should stop at one, right? You have other trademarks in your business. You know, you create trademark every, every time you use the thing in commerce, right? You don't have to register it, right? Trademark starts what we call the common law. So the moment you start using it in business, you're theoretically creating trademark rights so long as you're not infringing on a pre-existing trademark. But you probably want to know that sooner and later, sooner than later. So before you make a variation, you know, talk to a lawyer, get a trademark check, right? Make sure that this is, you know, whatever you call this thing is is, is viable. And and what do I mean by by these trademarks? Just think about, you know, Unilever, right? Like what do they own? They own Axe Body Spray. That's a brand, right? I mean Dove soap, I think it's not them. I, I mean, but you see what I'm saying? Like, like a lot of companies have multiple trademarks. So, so you've got to basically be on top of that. You should be counted because when you sell your business, you're going to make a promise that you own all these trademarks, whether you register them or not, you're, you're making the representation that you, you do own them and you could register them if you wanted to. Yeah. And if that, it turns out one of them is unregisterable. Yeah. So let's, let's just say like. Your variation, you know, your, your, your blueberry flavored version of your product, right? That variation you're using, you call it blueberry. It turns out, whoops, you're infringing on the cereal blueberry, uh, that you're out of luck, right? You can't sell that anymore. You've lost the, the listing. You've lost the ASIN. You've lost, potentially lost the reviews. I mean, buyer would be pretty ticked off about that. So it's better to sort of establish now and vet these things now than later. Yeah. Um, I would say, I would have put a positive spin on this, by the way. I, I think, which not spin, I think it's just a different way of looking at the same situation, but it's, I think it's really important, which is intellectual property feels to a lot of Amazon owner operators, you know, business owner operators like, oh, it's a pain. It's a risk factor. It's something I ought to deal with, but it's unpleasant. I would flip it on its head. 
I mean, you're selling a business. You're not selling bricks and mortar, right? I can't live in your business. It's not like a, an apartment or a flat or a house or whatever. So everything you're selling is kind of intangible anyway. So you've got to get over that, you know, but what you own is a thing and that's a valuable thing. So if you own a trademark, if you own uh, a copyright, if you own anything at all, that is a property that can be defined as intellectual property, it's a thing that somebody owns, right? And if you own it and you can show that you own it, that's a thing you can sell and it has, that's value. And I think that's actually incredibly positive thing. I, I look on this as owning and, and verifying your own ownership of stuff. So people who like to own things maybe will think of that as a more positive way. And I just wanted to mention as well, like I, I'm not a lawyer, so go and consult one, folks, if you're listening. But uh, it's interesting that in both the UK and the US, you have common law and sort of statute law around intellectual property. So I guess you've got to track both, right? How do we deal with that sort of slightly messier thing? Well, we, we just said, I mean, that's, I mean, that's where we come in. So we would kind of want to help you catalog it's not hard, right? So you have common law, you have common law trademark and you have common law copyright. So just start cataloging what you have, start registering copyrights. I mean, just, just, you know, get up to speed, right? Get up to speed, you know, similar with compliance with laws. Like if you're selling a product, I, I, I've seen situations where people have been selling products for years. They find out, you know, during their deal that suddenly they're not compliant with like an FDA rule. And it's like, it's a big problem, right? And then they find out that not only can they not sell their business, they shouldn't be selling on Amazon technically legally, right? And that's a tough thing to have to tell somebody, right? Especially if there's no quick fix. So to say something that I realize somebody watches might say, well, I'd rather be willfully blind then to these points, but that's not the way to be. Right? I mean, that just that gets you in a lot of trouble. That can just be bad for your business. Better to get in front of these things, you know? And for those who are starting out, you know, start early. If you're selling a product, then learn what your regulations are or learn what what you have to comply with because you you don't want to spend money building this thing and then find out that you know it's all for naught you lost out on the best part which is that again generational wealth through the enterprise value you build through your brand i mean that's it's, it there's nothing like it i mean say what you will we have a whole business dealing with people who get suspended and it's called seller basics and and we have a lot of people from different various backgrounds of Amazon, but people who are, are brand owners, we have people who are wholesalers, we have people who are resellers. So we see all the gamuts of Amazon and e-commerce. And I got to tell you, there's no opportunity like what you have in the private label space to build your brand and exit at a multiple of earnings. Like you're not going to really do that. That's hard to do if you're a wholesaler. It's almost impossible to do if you're just sort of a, a reseller or arbitrager. And don't get me wrong, I love arbitrage. I used to do it, but it just just you're missing out right like you're the you're spending those hours as a brand owner building this thing and you're going to receive hopefully in the end a multiple of value that's just unobtainable in any other format of amazon and i'd hate to see that get messed up by just you know not sort of doing your own due diligence on yourself earlier on in the process yeah and i would say also just to make it broader here and uh, again more positive but if you create something of value then you have the risk of losing it and i guess if you even if you never sell your business i know some people who have no intention of ever doing that really right. i think they might eventually pass it on to their children but as you say generational wealth is, is a thing for quite a few people i've worked with then why not protect what you are anyway it seems basic to me i, I think that as you say willful blindness is an interesting phrase i do see quite a lot of that out there that people I can understand there's so much stress and strain goes with creating a business like this. And we all know that from experience, if you're listening and you've done it, welcome to the club. But it's, I can understand why you don't want another problem solved. But I would just say protecting stuff means that you can sleep better at night as well. And, and I guess I would just come back to like ownership. If you own something of value, you can sell it for a lot of cash. That's definitely proven, as you said. 
if you therefore take the business of owning things and protecting things seriously, you're protecting your future money. I would I just try to put it that way. I, I guess a lot of what we're talking about is almost, <laughs> it's like sort of therapy for, for, for sellers having to deal with lawyers. I mean, it's like, come on, you've got to find a way yeah, of well, saying I mean, this. I, you know? <laughs> I go back to my joke at the beginning, right? I mean, it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's one of the reasons I like exits and I like the work is because, you know, out of all the places, it's like where your client is the most like, happy to spend money with you. Like, like they're not usually like, you know, when your client goes to a lawyer, it's usually something sad, like taxes or somebody, you know, this bad thing happened, right? The thing about exit, it's like, at least it's positive, right? Like your client's happy. It's a fun, it's a fun experience to go through with somebody like that. I, I really enjoy it. I enjoy when the deal closes. I think it's important. It's very important. I think it's, it's just, it's a really, it's a satisfying feeling to watch somebody just sort of experience that, you know, pop in their bank account. Uh, just like kind of mind blown, you know, state of like, wow, what just happened? And you're like, yeah, that's pretty cool. Definitely. You know, you hear about what are their plans next, you know, you, which is usually repeat, you know, they're usually ready, you know, I'm going to take a break and start another branch or, you know, usually they're ready to jump right back in, you know, maybe after a Lambo or two, but no more than two. Lambo or two, yeah, the cliches. No more than two. I always say no more than two. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's your professional advice as a lawyer. I like that. We also talk about a couple of other areas that, that we've got on the list here that I think are ones that come up. Hey folks, thanks for listening to another episode of the 10K Collector Podcasts, a subset of the amazing FBA family of podcasts. So today we're talking to Paul Raffleson of ecom.law. Um, law, never normally a, a fun subject, but I guess what we're talking about today is really how to avoid future pain. And indeed, how to make sure you don't get in your own way for for um seven figure exit because the legal stuff really can become uh, a very nasty problem, or it can be dealt with. And not only do you sleep better at night, but anyone you're trying to sell your business to is going to be very reassured. And I can assure you as well that somebody's been doing some not legal but other types of due diligence on an Amazon business on behalf of their client who ended up not buying the business. <laughs> Thanks really to my advice that, you know, um, you look at things in a really different way when your own money's on the line or if, if you're involved closely and you are going to find that any good buyer is going to turn over every single turn and look under every rock. I'm not sure that's even English, but you know what I mean? They're going to look at everything. They will leave no stone unturned is what I'm trying to say. So be thorough and do it early and get professional advice is the best the best thing i can say i mean you i think you should have two people on speed dial um if you still use speed dial uh for your business which is your accountant and your lawyer um not necessarily because you're going to do anything vastly different in terms of decision making so much as to run your decisions past those guys and go does this make sense is this a good plan have i got any issues that you can see with that and often they'll just say yes that's fine um if you want that in your corner, certainly if you're American-based, uh, but even if you are UK-based and you sell in the States, I would strongly advise you to check out sellerbasics.com, which is uh, Paul Raffleson's um, sort of sister company to ecom.law, which uh, for $99 a month, so almost nothing, you can have an account health team that helps if you get suspended. You have free consultations with lawyers, and um, they can make that affordable because they're basically on insurance like maths, which basically means, um, you know, most people won't call them most of the time. So when they do, they can afford to charge you just 99 bucks a month. 
you know, you're not going to get um, due diligence for an acquisition or something like that for 99 bucks a month, but it's, it's really, really helpful to have somebody in your corner who you can have a really quick consult with. Um, and um, I think that's incredibly important and they will do good account health reviews as well, deal with uh, intellectual property claims, deal with uh, account suspension, um, really, really important stuff. And, and Paul is incredibly experienced in this stuff as well. So I'd strongly suggest you check that out if you don't have somebody in your corner. Um, by the way, just in case you're thinking, oh, I can deal with suspension if that comes up, it never comes up, it never happened to me. Well, it does happen to people that I've worked with. Fortunately, not personally experienced the account suspension, but listing suspension I have, I think everyone has. And when you reach out to the experts for account suspension help, you're looking at fees of thousands of dollars. So if you could get somebody in place to prevent that, I promise you just financially 99 bucks a month is nothing in that context, right? The other one is uh, if you want to reach out for a more involved situation, for example, if you have got an account suspension or hopefully more um, with this being we're looking at today, uh, if you're looking to exit your business at some point, you have some legal questions, reach out to Paul, P-A-U-L at ecom.law. That's E-C-O-M-1-M uh, dot law. Really important to have these people in your back pocket. And you don't have to limit yourself to talking to Paul. You can talk to other lawyers if you want. But I want you to promise me, if you're listening, that you're going to get legal advice in your business. As Paul said, I think this is a really good statement. If you want to take it, if you're building a serious business, you should be taking it seriously. And that means professional advice from people who really know what they're talking about. Thanks for listening. Um, we will be continuing this conversation with Paul in the next episode for the moment. Don't forget, if you're finding useful advice here, don't forget to subscribe to the show on any podcast near you, and I'll speak to you soon. Do you want to grow your Amazon business bigger or faster? I bet you do. If so, a free audit of your Amazon business can help you see and avoid threats and find some golden missed opportunities. Generally, I charge at least $150 an hour these days for my time, but this is free. You can be a reseller or a brand owner. All I ask is that you're doing at least a few thousand dollars a month in sales. If you are, just go to myamazonaudits.com, scroll down, click on Amazon Audit and book in a time and we'll see each other on a Zoom call. That's M-Y-A-M-A-Z or Z-O-N-A-U-D-I-T.com. Thank you very much for listening and I hope to see you on a call soon. Thanks for listening to the 10K Collective podcast for six and seven figure Amazon sellers. I really hope you found the show helpful to you. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave us a quick star rating. It will take you all of 30 seconds to do it, but it does mean we can be found by and help many more e-commerce business builders. I wish you fast and profitable scaling, and I hope you enjoy the process of building your seven-figure Amazon business. Thanks very much for listening.